FX medicine is evolving. The same evidence-based research, ideas and thought-provoking conversations that you love in refreshed new formats. To help co-create it with us and for member rewards, sign up at fxmedicine.com.au. For now, enjoy this podcast previously recorded with Andrew Whitfield-Cook. This podcast is intended as healthcare practitioner education only and is not a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis or treatment. This is FX Medicine, I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. Joining us on the line today is Natalie Douglas, who's a qualified dietitian and nutritionist, a functional medicine practitioner, fitness instructor, naturopathic student, podcaster, author, speaker, and yoga teacher. Nat specializes in helping women with an underactive thyroid or Hashimoto's reclaim their energy and thyroid health. She does this using the power of functional testing, real food, gut health, smart supplementation, quality sleep, stress management, appropriate movement and spiritual well-being. Nat has developed a 12-week online program called Thyroid Rescue, which is a 90-day health and energy transformation program for women with an underactive thyroid or Hashimoto's disease. Welcome to FX Medicine, Natalie Douglas. How are you? I'm good. Thank you. It's good to be back. Now, Nat, How do we properly test for Hashimoto's? This is a a question which is fraught with issues, not the least of which are, how do you get the test done? Oh, totally. And it's sometimes the most frustrating thing in practicing. And I'm sure I'm not alone in that. I'm sure there's many people listening that are like, yep, it's really hard to get anything other than a TSH. So for me, the first line of testing would be to run a complete thyroid panel. So um, as a bare minimum, that would be a TSH, a free T4, free T3 and thyroid antibodies. So those being thyroglobulin antibodies and thyroperoxidase antibodies with the latter um, being more specific to Hashimoto's. And look, you don't need to run thyroid receptor antibodies unless you suspect Gray's disease, in my opinion. I mean, I kind of ask for it just because if you're already asking for the rest, then why not? Sometimes you'll get a willing a willing doctor to order all those tests if not then you can order them privately of course um and technically from my understanding at the moment to be diagnosed with Hashimoto's by most doctors they will actually need to see an elevation in um, thyroid antibodies as well as low thyroid function however thyroid antibody elevation in the absence of thyroid hormone abnormalities is still considered an early warning sign and antibodies can actually be elevated about eight to 10 years, I believe, before we see changes to markers such as TSH and free T4 and free T3, for example. And unfortunately, in the conventional medical model, Hashimoto's or thyroid issues generally aren't treated or paid any attention to until thyroid function has been affected, which to me seems silly because we know from the research that even things like selenium and inositol can be tools in decreasing thyroid antibodies and that is going to help stop the progression or further destruction of the thyroid tissue. And I think one thing to mention here though is that 
while 80 to 90% of people with Hashimoto's will have either TPO or thyroglobulin um, antibodies or both, there are actually a small subset of people that don't. So these people usually have a less aggressive version of Hashimoto's known Mm. as antibody negative or seronegative Hashimoto's. And in that situation, probably the next port of call would be to do a thyroid ultrasound to look for physical changes in the thyroid gland that point to Hashimoto's. So when they're doing an ultrasound, they're looking for things like changes in size, texture, density um, of the tissue and nodules. And if nodules are there, um, which in simple terms is just abnormal growth, then um, if they look suspicious, um, a nodule biopsy would usually be the next step. So you can kind of see how relatively frustrating it is that most people are just getting a TSH done. And I think it's really important that we as natural medicine practitioners are advocating for proper testing. um, And sometimes that does mean out-of-pocket stuff, but I think it's worth it. But at least once you have those results for the out-of-pocket, then the proof is there. So you could then go back to your doctor and say, look, it is elevated. I do have antibodies. And of Mm. course, then you go on that journey. Can I just ask first though, when you're mentioning free TSH and free T4, what's the relevance with thyroid binding globulin here? So thyroid binding globulin is basically like the taxi that carries around the free T4 and free T3. And look, you can definitely do more thorough testing in terms of doing total T4, total T3, and then looking at the free stuff. But I find there's you can get enough information just from the free hormones yep. um, because there is, like that is what is going to be most active. You can certainly um, request to measure thyroid binding globulin, which is like the taxi, but I find um, sometimes it's a bit more difficult. Like a lot of the time, you know, it's a struggle even just to get free T4 and free T3. But I feel like that in conjunction with really thorough kind of symptom, um, you know, symptom taking, like note taking on that can just be enough to put your case together. And with regards to thyroid antibodies, it's obviously, you've obviously created antibodies to your own tissue, mm-hmm. but are there remedial therapies that we can take to thwart that from happening or decrease it from happening? Yeah, yeah, like there's plenty of things that you can use to help decrease that, like selenium and ositol is like two things that have been really thoroughly researched in relation to decreasing those antibodies and um, certainly making dietary changes and going after root causes as well um, in relation to thyroid stuff, which I know we're going to do a separate podcast on it um, soon as well, (laughs) um, which will be helpful because, yeah, there's absolutely plenty you can do. I think probably one of the reasons why why the conventional medical system pays no attention until your thyroid labs are out of range is because they have nothing to offer like the treatment for them is just thyroid hormone replacement and if someone has just got elevated thyroid antibodies but their thyroid labs are in range then for them they don't have any options yeah. on, you know in their toolkit whereas we do like we have plenty of things that we can do to help stop that from progressing into a place where um the thyroid markers are completely off. That's a really interesting thing you say because, I, like, I'm reminded by something 
uh, it was Professor Tom Barodi who said this, and he said, I'm not going to treat if I can't change anything. And, yeah. and that's a quandary which I guess any practitioner is really in, um, that you've got to see a benefit. You've got to be able to see a benefit. Now, when you're talking about thyroid disease, if all you've got is the hormone and that's not necessarily the issue, <laughs> well, you're yeah. in a bit of a quandary as to when you can use it. Yeah, so prevention, totally. prevention is really out for standard medicine. Mm, and this is where I think we as natural health practitioners have so much power because they're like I kind of think of thyroid issues generally as like thyroid is like the canary in the coal mine. Like usually it's it's happened because something else is is off and it's kind of like a warning sign. And we looking at the whole body and treating the whole person. It just like it's amazing how how good of results you can do because it's kind of providing the body the tools it needs to do the healing itself. Yeah, and also I guess there's that issue with you know the the thyroid is an extremely efficient pump, so there can be a lot of damage. You were just mentioning it before that you can be you thyroid um, with regards to hormones, but your antibodies can be rampant, and so. Mm there there can be this amazing destruction, but you won't see the deleterious effects on hormones until way down the track. Exactly. And there's also the problem that the reference ranges for um, TSH and even free T4 and free T3 are just like, like wrong in my opinion, like mm. especially TSH. Like I think it's something like 0.5 to 4.5 or 5 at the moment but for me, when I'm looking at someone's TSH, I'm going to pay attention if it's starting to creep up up above about 2.5 because generally that's when I start to see a lot of symptoms happening. Um, and I think symptoms can tell you so much and I really encourage every practitioner to never just base things off pathology because I think that we all function with like there's there's a range for a reason and p different people are going to function better or worse at certain ends of that range yeah. and I think the symptoms are what tell you whether that level of thyroid hormone is working for that person. Okay, so there opens up another little can of worms. Um, thyroid governing the rate and rhythm of every cell in our body, but probably one of the the big hallmarks of thyroid underactivity would be fatigue. And fatigue can be due to so many issues. When would you test for thyroid issues? What patients present as red flags? And when would you tease that apart and go, oh, that's not really the thyroid type of fatigue. That's more of an immune type fatigue or a stress fatigue or a depression fatigue or, mm. you know, that sort of thing. Yeah, it's totally because it, like thyroid symptoms are so nonspecific and you're, you're right, like, many of the symptoms in an underactive thyroid could be attributed to so many different things. So, look, I think for me, in my head when I'm, I'm thinking about this, definitely those with a family history of Hashimoto's or Graves' disease or even just a history of autoimmunity in their family generally, um, assuming that they're also wow. coming to you with some symptoms. Um, and I'd also say those with existing autoimmune conditions because we know when you have one autoimmune condition, you're more likely to have or get another. Beyond that, I think a really good thorough symptom history is important. And as I said, this can be a bit challenging in some ways because there are so many potential symptoms of an underactive thyroid and they can, as I said, seem really nonspecific. Um, so 
I guess some of the main symptoms that a lot of people would be familiar with would be things like brain fog, weight gain, weight loss resistance, um, particularly if they feel like they're coming into you and they're like, look, I'm doing absolutely everything I can to, to lose weight and it's not happening. Um, low mood or depression, dry skin, brittle nails, poor hair growth or hair loss. A history of miscarriages is another red flag for me. Heavy periods, that puffiness, like people will like feel like they're they're puffy and sometimes you won't always be able to see that especially if you're seeing the person for the first time like you might just assume oh that's what they look like so that's where asking them that question is important not just basing it off observation um infertility cold hands and feet or intolerance to cold generally inability to sweat properly carpal tunnel syndrome ibs particularly constipation because if you think of thyroid hormone you know in its simplest terms, making things move, Mm. then constipation is a big red flag, excessive sleeping or feeling like fatigue. And I guess here what I ask people is do you like – because, I mean, so many people are tired these days, right? And generally speaking, like most people I ask, you know, what are your energy levels like? Are you tired? Most people will be like, oh, yeah, I'm a bit tired. What I'm more interested in is – are you tired even after you get adequate sleep? Right. Um, and that's a little bit of a hint for me. So, yeah, I think if you've got a person sitting in your office with at least a handful of those symptoms, in my opinion, it's worth investigation. It's not a huge cost to look at and could potentially be a game changer for that person or at the very least help rule out something and then lead you down a different path. So it's kind of like just doing your due diligence and starting to – you know, rule out certain things to help lead you to to a diagnosis. So that's probably what I'd say in relation to who I'm thinking about testing. Yeah. And, and again, you know, like I'm I'm just think trying to picture these patients. And you know, when you're talking about fatigue even after adequate rest, you know, I'm I'm still have this little bell ringing in my head about like sleep apnea, and there's so many other causes that we can that we have to tease apart that can be very very dangerous. And if we're treating, you know, what we might think as a thyroid disease and they have sleep apnea, we can not be doing them a favour at all. But then you get the chance of tying in other symptoms, like you mentioned puffiness. There's that, you know, loss of third of the outer loss of the outer third of the eyebrows, the raised mm. cholesterol, the cl- constipation. Then you get like this slowly you get a clearer picture and you I guess might have more of a suspicion of thyroid disease and then you can try and confirm it with testing. I'm I'm imagining that that's your last thing rather than your first. Is that right? Yeah, and even when I find or if I find an issue with their thyroid, I don't stop looking. I think that sometimes you can, as soon as we find something, I mean, this is what I, I did in the past uh, as an early well practitioner, done. I would find something and be like, ah, oh, I found it, that's it, that's the problem, no need to keep looking. But for me, I'm like, okay, so I found a thyroid issue, but why is it developed in the first place? Right. And why is it there? And I definitely think that looking really thoroughly at every single element of someone's health is is super important, Um, including, as you mentioned, I think sleep apnea is a huge thing, like dental health is a huge thing, breathing Mm. properly. I know you had um, my friend and colleague Lewis on the podcast who would have spoken about that. Yes. That's really opened up my eyes to that side of things as well. I think a lot of us kind of don't connect oral health with overall health and – I see that a lot. The more I ask about it now, the more I'm like, oh my gosh, like, wow, it's an issue. 
Okay, so moving on from that, are there any common thyroid patterns in the results that you see that might help us understand what might be driving this thyroid issue? Yeah, absolutely. And I think here is definitely where I want to get a bit more practical Practical because I know when I'm listening to all these wonderful practitioners on the podcast, there's nothing I love more than some tips and, um, you know, that I can actually use in practice the next day. And I want to give a shout out here to Rachel Arthur, whose education has definitely helped me develop my yes. skills in this area. And anyone listening, like she has a few like thyroid masterclass series and things like that, which I have found really practical as well. So look, in terms of like patterns, et cetera, I think one thing that is a great clinical clue in understanding what's happening in the thyroid gland is looking at not just the amounts of TSH and free T4 and free T3, but the ratios of them and their response to each other. So a simple first example would be someone with an elevated TSH but low T4 and or low or normal T3. What this is telling us usually is that the brain is sending the message to the thyroid to make thyroid hormone, but the thyroid doesn't have the resources it needs to actually make that happen. Mm. So I'd be thinking in this case things like, zinc, iron, iodine, tyrosine, or just adequate protein intake, selenium, like just think about what does it actually take to make thyroid hormone and convert it, and they're the big things that I'd be thinking about. Another really great clue is looking at the free T4 to free T3 ratio, which should be generally about three to one, and when we see an increase in this ratio, usually... um, it's an indication that the conversion from T4 to T3 is poor, which can come from several different causes. But the ones I see most commonly would be selenium deficiency, high cortisol, um, low-carb diets, and inflammation. And on the flip side of that, if you see a a ratio less than 3 to 1, this can indicate um, an iodine deficiency. So you obviously would need to go on to test that using – personally, I use a random urinary iodine test, and there's no perfect way to test iodine. That's just the way I choose to use it Mm -hmm. um, alongside symptoms. And I'd also make sure that if you're testing iodine – And you've got someone um, in front of you that you're thinking, well, I might be giving this person iodine supplementation, also running a thyroglobulin antibody test there as well. And the reason I say like that is because those people with elevated thyroglobulin antibodies in particular seem to be at a higher risk of adverse effects from like high dose iodine supplementation. And then I think the other thing I think is really interesting and that I actually see a fair bit too is this suppression of the whole kind of HPA, HPT axis rather. So there'll usually be in this case a lowish TSH and low T4 and um, either and usually a low T3 to be honest as well. And sometimes this happens in patients with a history of chronic undereating or eating disorders involving calorie restriction because we know that being malnourished or going through periods of starvation or even going through low-carb diets with calorie restriction results in what's called low T3 syndrome. So to my knowledge, there are a few theories around it. So one being this kind of idea of your set point altering and also the peripheral conversion being impaired. And it's kind of like the response to um, thyroid-releasing hormone by TSH is 
is kind of suppressed. So it's a shutdown probably as a protective mechanism at a brain level because if someone is starving or perceived to be starving via malnutrition, the body needs to become efficient at running off very little and can't afford to kind of turn up the engine and burn through more fuel, if that makes sense. Mm. And I think while research shows that in some people simply repleting key nutrients alongside protein and overall calorie intake can definitely be enough to reverse it, it actually isn't the case for everyone. And from what I've read in the research so far, the main two possibilities or theories so far are that one being the actual gland has shrunk due to prolonged um, lack of stimulation from TSH because of that kind of shutdown. So we know TSH literally stimulates the gland. Yeah. Um, And then the other one is kind of like this reduced biological effect due to structural changes in the TSH molecule. So I don't really know much more than that, admittedly, but my kind of go-to in these situations first is obviously to refeed these people and ensure carbohydrate intake is also adequate and to try and reduce any other kind of HBA access issues and restore any micronutrient deficiencies. And if that fails um, and this person is symptomatic, then sometimes a small amount of thyroid hormone replacement can be a big difference to their quality of life. So quite a few patterns to look up, look look over, and that's certainly not all of the things I see, but those would be the most common. And I think it can be just so helpful in understanding what's happening. And what I'd encourage people to do is really understand thyroid physiology and the negative feedback and um, the building blocks for that because I think if you understand how something works, it's easier than just kind of rote rote learning and remembering um, it from just a, I guess, that kind of view. If you understand what's happening, it's much easier for you to join the dots. Yeah. I mean, the thyroid is just probably the, the poster child of the negative feedback system, isn't it? Um, yeah, <laughs> um, totally. I, I have a question with what you were saying a little bit earlier. So T4 to T3 being in a ratio of three to one, correct? Mm, yes. Okay. What about reverse T3 here? Yeah, great question. And um, I used to measure reverse T3 a lot. These days, I don't as much. Okay. Um, I do when I can. And the reason why I don't is usually because of the expense of it and because I make the assumption that, well, most people that I'm seeing are quite stressed, um, do have all of that going on, and the treatment for reducing reverse T3 is usually reducing or regulating cortisol and inflammation, and I'm going to be doing that anyway. So I think that it's a great tool to have, and if if you can order it, absolutely do, but you don't, for me personally, I know that I'm going to treat the cause of the elevated reverse T3 if it's there anyway, regardless of whether I see it properly or not. In terms of like measuring it and understanding it, um, what I'm looking for with a reverse T3 is that it's no more than 100 times greater than the T3 level. So um, that's what I would be looking for because it ha- it is relative to the T- the free T3 that you have. So when you're looking at the result, you're looking at the free T3 that you've got and making sure that the reverse T3 is no more than 100 times greater of that free T3 on that test for that person as opposed to just a random reference range that, um, you know, you usually get for reverse T3. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, 
stress is one of the biggest triggers of reverse T3. There was also, though, um, heavy metals, right? Um, mercury, yeah. is that right? And, and, uh, yeah. and cadmium, is that right? Yeah, mercury right. more so, but definitely, um, definitely cadmium and even just other heavy metals as well because they have such an affinity for the thyroid gland. But mercury for sure is a big one. And to be honest, sometimes I will, will just run a blood mercury as like a first port of call and obviously doing a lot of questioning. And this is where it's important to question around dental health mm. and stuff as well because, you know, how many people have, you know, fillings um, or have gotten them removed without doing anything to help um, clear toxins or stuff like that after. So just really good history taking is, is important. I was really interested when, um, I think it was Ron Ehrlich, uh, Lewis's uncle, telling me mm. that dental dams were actually an approved device for mercury um, removal, that they were like indicated. It wasn't just a nicety that some dentists did. It was like, that was standard practice. It was, mm. it was really interesting to me. Like, I don't know a dentist other than a, an integrative one that does, that uses them. Yeah, I know. It's, it's, it's amazing, isn't it? And it's really hard for, for patients because how do they, like, you don't know what you don't know. And unless we are teaching them how to be advocates for their health. So if they do have to get their, um, you know, mercury fillings removed, then, you know, how do we give them the information so they can be an advocate for their health because realistically there isn't a holistic dentist everywhere where all of our patients will be but we can teach them to ask the right questions um, so that they are having a safe removal of those fillings if if that's what's happening for them yeah you know we we like to think about the causes and, and stress is obviously a major factor in many people's lives i get it but uh, you know ebv for instance um, mm. so the viral load bringing on the classic fatigue and that can indeed induce a Hashimoto's correct yeah absolutely and it's not just isolated to EBV like any like virus like cytomegalovirus CMV, um, yes yeah like there's like anything from like that herpes family can definitely be um, a trigger as well I think EBV is the most well-known one maybe because of that medical medium celery juice guy. <laughs> yeah. um, but, um, you know, to his, to his defence, like he's right, EBV is absolutely one. And I think it's, it's going after and just being really thorough in assessing these things. And, you know, obviously we can't completely rid the, rid the body of, um, of viruses, but we can certainly help control like decrease their reactivation and so I think that's really important to know and I just I've observed definitely treating so many thyroid patients how many people have multiple chronic viral infections and viral loads and so I think it's definitely something that needs to be paid attention to but again I think something to come back to is even if you find that don't stop looking like make sure you're still thorough because very rarely in my experience, is it just one thing? And so you really need to just be thorough and not prematurely stop your case investigation, basically. Darn these complex patients. Um, I know, right? <laughs> <laughs> but, so let's, let's talk a little bit about that. The most common root causes that you see in clinical practice, um, you know, that drive thyroid disease, I, I guess specifically Hashimoto's, but there's others as well. Yeah, yeah. So I would say there is a handful of ones that 
uh, kind of like the frequent flyers, and I'd say <laughs> nutrient deficiencies, so um, things like inadequate protein intake because then you're not getting enough tyrosine to even build the thyroid hormones, um, low iron, selenium, zinc, and iodine would be the top ones. And I'd say that isn't necessarily specifically driving Hashimoto's. That would be driving more so inadequate thyroid hormones with or without Hashimoto's. Um, other things, definitely heavy metals and viral infections, as you mentioned. Gut issues are a huge one. Um, so that could be SIBO, parasites, you know, dysbiosis. So, and, and that's not just exclusive to Hashimoto's, also in Graves. Like I've, I had a patient not too long ago who um, had Graves' disease or has like got diagnosed with Graves' disease you know, it was just in this massive flare. We used plenty of things to try and calm that down alongside medication. And then we started doing the work at looking at the underlying root causes. And we found SIBO in her, treated the SIBO, Graves is in remission. So it goes to show, like, you just need to be thorough in that case. And, and definitely there is a very high rate of patients that have Hashimoto's that also have SIBO. Because if you think about everything slowing down in Hashimoto's or an underactive thyroid makes it a lot easier for bacteria to overgrowth if you if you if everything's not moving through that whole system very well so and the other thing that often happens with thyroid patients because they're so tired a lot of them will be eating or grazing throughout the day just to try and keep their energy levels up and we know that kind of grazing throughout the day on food doesn't give much time for your digestive system to rest and for that migrating motor complex in your small intestine to actually do its sweeps of um, movement. So it's mm. kind of a bit multifaceted there. Um, there is some correlation as well with um, H. pylori and Hashimoto's, uh -huh. though correlation, not causation. So yeah. I, I think that's where it is at, at this stage. Um, and I think a same with Klebsiella and a few other ones that I can't remember right now. But again, correlation, not causation. And so I think it's something to be aware of. But again, once you find it, don't stop looking everywhere else. I, I wonder if, um, you know, kind of like the EBV picture, it's not necessarily just the EBV when you consider that 95% of us have been infected. Not 95% totally. of us suffer the fatigue associated with it. So there mm. seems to be these other antecedents that are, that are around that cause this perfect storm. And I wonder if this is the case with, you know, the H. pylori, the Klebs, all of that sort of thing as well. Yeah, totally. And I think we have to remember that, like, realistically, we are far more bacteria and virus than we are human cells. <laughs> and it's, yep. it's really about, like, how do we exist um, with them without it being a problem and how do we create more balance i think a lot of the time it's um this kill 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 approach and not always and certainly there's a time to kill things um but there's de there's also something to be said about how do we build resilience in the system and, and restore balance as well so i think that's that's a whole nother can of worms in relation to, to gut health and and parasites and dysbiosis and you know viral load but definitely something that is worth attention and i think the other root causes i see a lot would be undiagnosed celiac disease and or uh, gluten sensitivity um mold illness um, chronic inflammation and I'd say high cortisol levels or just general, you know, HPA axis dysregulation because, you know, the thyroid and the adrenals are 
such good friends and so rarely are you going to see one off without the other being affected. How do you tease apart gluten sensitivity versus celiac? Yeah, um, so I would first of all definitely be making sure that I am looking at um, running first and foremost a celiac antibody test, not perfect by any means, but a screening tool. Um, If they, It's kind of complicated because a lot of the patients that come to see me Mm. already are gluten-free and have been gluten-free for a long time. Um, And so, and most of them, to be honest, don't feel well when they reintroduce gluten and don't want to. Um, and how can I accurately test if they have celiac disease without, without them challenge. having actually, yeah. And so I guess a bit of a tangent here, but the discussion I have with people is that, you know, I'm not going to force them to do anything, but my I see my role as giving them the education that they need to make an informed decision. And the reality is that if if I suspect that there's any chance that they have celiac disease, then I will say to them, look, you have two options. One is that you eat gluten again, um, so that, and then we do a colonoscopy and an endoscopy, and we get the correct kind of gold standard diagnosis to say yes, whether you have it or no, whether you don't. Mm. Um, and that kind of is the end. Like that's it. That's your answer. If you're not willing to do that then my recommendation to you is that you assume you have celiac disease because, you know, Eve, if you've got celiac disease and you continue to eat gluten, mm-hmm. there's just Even so much amount. stuff. Yeah, so much stuff that can go wrong. So, And a lot of people, to be honest, a lot of my patients are just like, well, I'll, I'm happy to just act as if I do. And then I will go through celiac education with them because – um, it's so important that you you do that. And I think there are some practic- practitioners out there that will just be like the only option for you is you have to eat gluten and you have to do that test properly. But a lot of people are just going to go, well, I'm not going to do that. Um, and then they don't understand, you know, that there is the, like the seriousness of actually being really diligent with it. So yeah. I think it's just about presenting people with their options so they can make an informed choice because I'm definitely – all about empowering people like in that way I think that too often we outsource our own health to other people including practitioners I think we're there to guide people but they also have to be part of that process so yeah I guess gluten sensitivity coming back to your question gluten sensitivity versus um, celiac disease would more be process of elimination so trying to go through the celiac um, diagnostic process first and if that is been cleared, there is no celiac disease there, um, and they react to having gluten, then I would, um, that's when I assume that there is an issue for them. To be honest, most of the time, I get people to eliminate it for 30 to 60 days and then reintroduce it and see how they feel and educate them on the kind of symptoms that they might feel. So, you know, going back to it, not just being a gut reaction, but, you know, are there any other symptoms that you feel like an increase in brain fog, irritability, mood issues, um, you know, is your your skin funny, like just all these different non-specific symptoms. And that way it teaches them how to understand what different foods are doing in their body. And then it's up to them. Like this is, this is the reaction you get when you have gluten. This is what's happening at a cellular level or an inflammation level. Now you can make the decision of is that something you want to 
consume and it's worth it for you or is it something you want to avoid? I think that's really empowering for people to understand why they're doing something and what the consequence is as opposed to just coming out and being like, you can't eat this ever because that feels really, um, I don't know, really disempowering to me as if I was a patient to hear that. I would feel like, well, I'm not going to stick to something unless I know why. So I think education Mm. is part of that process. Well, like I like the way that you prioritise that for the patient health. You know, if you're not going to test, if you're not going to challenge, assume that you have it because just having a little bit can cause really bad effects um, with even, you know, nutrient depletion and, and even future risk of other things. But I'm still sort of caught up though with regards to gluten sensitivity. If we're talking about what you said uh, about um, resilience and another word that goes hand in hand with that is nourishing the body. Have you gotten to a stage where people, because they've healed their gut, they've settled the inflammation down in their body, they've addressed inflammation triggers from other external events like stress, can you get rid of or minimise gluten sensitivity? Yeah, look, I think so. I think um, many of my patients who have gone through that process and then reintroduced things will find that they can tolerate um, more than they used to. Mm. And if they choose to eat gluten, some of them do tolerate it completely well as long as it's small amounts. And what I often tell people is, you know, the times to maybe indulge a little bit more if you're finding that um, you are okay with gluten, at least to an extent, then the times to do that might be when you are when your stress levels are low and when your overall load on your system is much less. So, um, you know, when people are on holidays, a lot of them find they can get away with so much more. And I think right. it's just about educating people about, you know, in the body, it's all about the load of stress and that can come from so many different ways, emotional stress, environmental stress, physical stress, chemical stress, all these different things, and you have to make sure that your bucket isn't overflowing and recognising what things are filling that up um, and so that you're not adding too much on. I would say, to be honest, any patient of mine that has a diagnosis of Hashimoto's, I personally do encourage to avoid gluten for the long term if they can because of that stronger association between celiac disease and Hashimoto. So mm-hmm. that's maybe where I'd be a little bit more like, look, my opinion on this is that if I was you and I had Hashimoto's, I would avoid gluten because, you know, I don't want to have any risk of triggering an additional autoimmune condition if I can easily avoid it. And nowadays, most mostly it's pretty damn easy to eat gluten-free and I think, um, you know, maybe it might have been a different story a long time ago where it might have been socially isolating to um, eat gluten-free or more difficult or more expensive. But these days, you know, at pretty much every restaurant or cafe that you walk in has gluten-free options. And so reasonably tasting gonna... ones. Yeah, exactly. And yeah. I think, you know, the other thing that I'm really passionate about is making sure that when you're encouraging someone to go on a gluten-free diet, it's not like here's a gluten-free product to replace your gluten-containing product. It's like how do I 
increase the nutrient density of this diet using whole foods that naturally don't contain gluten. I think certainly there's a time for gluten-free products because we all, you know, love a slice of bread or love, you know, those kind of things Mm. here and there. But really, when I'm trying to heal someone's body, not just am I looking at what am I taking out, but what am I putting back in? And that's kind of how I approach dietary changes is providing people with what to put in as opposed to what to take out because I think that it feels more achievable as opposed to just giving them this long list of don't eat this, that, this, that, you know, it can feel really like, oh, what am I going to eat? So, yeah, that's my approach. I'm trying to figure this out in my mind about the safety aspect versus the pragmatic aspects. And so I'm still caught on this celiac versus gluten sensitivity and Mm. I'm, and I'm, I'm wondering if somebody has willingly excluded gluten from their diet, um, but they don't have demonstrable celiac disease because they refuse to challenge, but then every now and again they might sneak a little bit of gluten, would you therefore maybe test something like iron in, say, a year or something if their fatigue continues? And and I know this is sort of getting off the track of thyroid, but I think it's an important sort of issue to, to keep track of for health's sake. Oh, totally. I I absolutely think that it's really important to be thorough and looking for the other clues of of celiac disease or malabsorption. And I think definitely running iron studies, um, you know, six monthly or um, yearly is is important. And I would still go back. I would still, I'm very strong on those two options to people in terms of if you're not willing to challenge, Mm. you must for your health make sure that you are avoiding gluten like you have celiac disease. And I feel like I've done my job then because I can't force someone to do something that they don't want to do, but I can educate them on the consequences if they don't do Mm. what I'm saying basically. And I think, I mean, you can certainly still run more comprehensive like uh, celiac um, antibody testing. Like I think there's, um, there are more comprehensive like, uh, sensitivity testing that you can do besides just the standard one that you'd get through Medicare. Like, oh, there's just so many that you can do. But personally, I find doing challenges, like food challenges, to be really telling for people, um, either in conjunction with the testing or just on their own. But I think at the end of the day, you know, if you can get someone to properly, properly assess whether they have celiac disease by encouraging them to eat gluten for a period of time, then I think that sometimes that it can be the better option because a lot of people require actual solid evidence for them to be really diligent in avoiding. But there are those people and we all have them, those patients that are just like, there is no way, and I totally understand that because this was my decision as well. Like, there's no way I'm I'm going to eat that again. I know it doesn't make me feel well, and I'm willing to assume that I have it um, and and avoid it exactly like that. But so, I do love your advice about including other foods rather than just restricting those for you know the the gluten. In, you in, yeah. you look for options rather than just restriction. I like exactly. That. Thank you. <laughs> are, are there any other tests we should be running to pick up thyroid disease? We've gone through nutrient stuff. Um, yeah. We've gone through the hormones. Cholesterol's not sensitive. What else hmm. have we got? Yeah, look, I mean, I 
I love testing and I I think that there's so much that you can get through a standard blood test without going down the functional um, route. Although I love functional testing, sometimes it's just not affordable for some people. So look, in terms of what I do personally, um, I look at like a complete blood blood count to see what's happening a bit with the immune system. I look at iron studies. I look at CRP, to, like usually high sensitive high sensitivity CRP to see what's happening in terms of inflammation. I might look at zinc and copper, selenium, vitamin D, just from like an immune and autoimmune protective standpoint. I do look at random urinary iodine um, if I can, and if they've presented with thyroid antibodies. I'd usually be screening them for any other autoimmune conditions, so perhaps doing something like the celiac serology, um, ANA and ENA. And I also have to say that if it's a female client, I do also like to check to see what's happening with their estrogen levels because we know that elevated estrogen can elevate thyroid binding globulin. And if you've got too much thyroid binding globulin, which are like the taxis, then you're not going to have enough passengers, aka thyroid hormones, out on the street. So not enough thyroid hormones actually free to kind of run about and do their thing, and that's going to cause symptoms. And then beyond that, in my head, I'm kind of going through the checklist um, above in relation to like what I mentioned before in relation to the root causes and any red flags that would be would indicate, for example, that this person has a gut issue or heavy metal exposure or mold issues. Um, and the other thing that I guess isn't really specific pathology testing but that I find particularly helpful, which I get all of my patients to do either on their own or like or I'll help them through it, is doing a health timeline because you'd be surprised at how many people's Hashimoto's is triggered by emotional stress or trauma. And we have to remember that although for us, we assume that, well, of course, emotional trauma or stress or a divorce or a breakup or moving cities or change or going through a stressful job or, you know, anything like that. Of course, us as holistic health practitioners are like, oh, yeah, of course, that's going to affect your physical health. But Mm -hmm. not all of our patients or many of them really will actually connect that dot unless you question them. And so I find just asking them a lot of questions really helpful and not kind of going into any consultation with assumptions. So that's my number one rule, which I've learnt the hard way, is never assuming that if someone doesn't tell you something, it's not there because often they're just not aware that it's impo- it's an important piece of information for you. Um, the antecedents. The <laughs> uh, <laughs> it brings back time and time again the value of a detailed and thorough family and patient history. Yeah, exactly. And I think sometimes, like one thing that's helped me, and again, a little little bit of a sidestep, but something that's really helped me over time in clinical practice is that, you know, we only have a certain amount of time with a patient, at a spe- like, you know, in an initial consultation. What I like to do is have a really thorough pre-consult questionnaire that they fill out because then I've kind of screened a lot of um, the questions because you'll find in a conversation with a patient, they're not, like people are generally storytellers. 
And so they're not just going to most of the time answer your question as a yes or no, which means that the consultation ends up being really long. Whereas if you can get them to fill out a pre-consult questionnaire beforehand, you know where you need to further question this person and, and kind of get out more information as opposed to spending, you know, an hour or 90 minutes just asking question after question and hearing, and I know this sounds harsh, but like hearing stories um, that maybe aren't helping you get closer. I definitely think listening to people um, and taking time to hear the way they're speaking and the way they are is really important as well. But I think you can only tick so many boxes. So yeah. a, a really thorough pre-consult questionnaire going through things like dental history, family history, gut symptoms, like, you know, do you have a history of low iron? All these, like, have you lived in a water damaged building? All these different questions. Because if they answer no um, to something like, have you ever lived in a water damaged building or are you currently in that? Or, you know, have you had any mold issues that you're aware of? You at least know that, okay, so I've, I've screened them for that. So maybe I won't focus my attention here. I'll focus it on the fact that they've got a billion gut issues that they're ticking yes to. So I, I would imagine that you've got a voluminous amount of intake forms. <laughs> so, <Yeah. laughs> uh, so where can people get further information? Have you got things on your website? I understand you've developed a course. Yeah. So, I mean, the course is for um, patients ah, and it's right. a 12-week a, yeah, online course in relation to that. I am looking at in the future to um, look at opening up some mentoring around thyroid issues and just helping practitioners kind of understand how to assess it better and treat it better. Um, there's plenty of um, plenty of uh, kind of in, there's plenty of information on my podcast that I run, um, which is called the Holistic Nutritionist Podcast, and um, there's also um, information on my website just in terms of blog posts and stuff like that. And I would say not my information, but Rachel Arthur has some great practitioner-centered education around that. So yes. that's probably where I direct people. Yes. Um, can I ask you, what's your favorite textbook with regards to thyroid health? Oh, gosh. I don't think I have one, to be completely honest with you. I don't. I think I've gathered most of my um, information and around thyroid health from doing different courses through Rachel Arthur's stuff, through reading the research, through a lot of Isabella Wentz, who I know yeah. you've had on the podcast a long time ago. Yes. And I think she's got she's got some really fantastic information um, and a lot of links to studies. So I think just Amy Myers, who we had at um, the Bioceuticals Research Symposium, I think that's where I get most of my information. I, I don't particularly have a, a textbook, so to speak. Natalie Douglas, thank you so much for taking us through. This is, I mean, this is a quandary, let's face it, and it, and it does require ongoing education. Um, and you've got some really great practical information, not just for patients, but importantly for all of us practitioners to, to review and to keep on top of so that we can help our patients better. And thank you so much for taking us through some of these today. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. This is FX Medicine. I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. Thanks for listening. To make sure you never miss an episode, subscribe to us on YouTube, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts or Spotify. You can also let us know what further topics you'd like us to cover by contacting us through our website, fxmedicine.com.au or by connecting with us on Facebook or Instagram.